Thanks, Johnny and Jen, for leading us in worship this morning and preparing our hearts for the preaching of the Word. Today we are in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 25 to 32. And this is part three of what we called Walk in Holiness. And these messages on holiness are part of a, the broader series that we're looking at, which we called The Worthy Walk. Paul wanted the Ephesians to walk worthy of their calling, to walk worthy of their salvation. And he wanted their day-to-day lives to be worthy of what God had done in them in saving them. If God has done a supernatural, life-changing work in our salvation, then it should be demonstrated in how we conduct ourselves in the world. And part of that demonstration involves holiness, or what we might call righteous living. The Christian salvation corresponds with holiness. And that's what Paul means by worthy in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1 where he says, Therefore, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then in 4.17, Paul said in effect, Don't walk like the Gentiles. This is how we're to walk in this world. Not like the Gentiles. And the Gentiles there represented unsaved people. Gentiles walked in verse 17 of chapter 4 in futility of mind. And they wasted their lives in vain pursuits chasing after idols. And then in verse 18 it says they they are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. And so Paul doesn't want the Ephesian believers to walk like that. That's not the way that they learned Christ, according to verse 20. And what they had learned when they came to know the Lord Jesus Christ was the truth, verse 21. And they learned that the person that they, they once were before they were saved had died. The old self, the old man had been taken off and laid aside. And they learned that they had put on the new self, the new man in verse 24. And it's a picture of the removal of dirty clothes, of, of taking something off and then something new and clean being put on. Verse 23 spoke about the part that is to continue in the life of the believer, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And I argued that it's best to see, this is last time I was preaching from this, I argued that it's best to see verse 22 and verse 24 not as something that we must do, but something that's already been done in the life of a Christian. Our old self that was corrupted and controlled by the desires of the flesh has been put off in Christ. And in him we've been made new. We have according to Ephesians 4 verse 24, we have put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And that's where we're drawing the the title of this series that this is walk in holiness. We've been made new in righteousness and holiness. And a Christian is to walk according to this new self. Now, here's where this can get to be great news for us, and and there's really two parts to this. First of all, when we walk in the holiness and righteousness of our new nature, it glorifies God. 
And what we'll see in our study today is that this, this worthy walk is something very practical. You see, we don't have to do some great thing to honor the Lord. We don't have to do some great work to really please the Lord. All we need to do is live out our salvation day by day in our homes and in our families and in our relationships with other believers. See, God designed salvation in such a way that, that He will be glorified as we live what, what we might call normal lives. But this normal is not anything like the normal of what we were before we were saved. It's just a, a normal, everyday, living in this world according to our new nature. And secondly, what I want you to realize as we begin here is that, that we have everything that we need to walk worthy of our salvation. We have everything we need to glorify God. We are new creatures in Christ. We have salvation. We were called. And now all we need to do is live according to who we are and grow into being who we are in Christ. We were created, again, after the likeness of God. And now we are to live after the likeness of God. And living that way is further defined as living in true righteousness and holiness. And so in Christ, you have all the resources that you need to live a God-glorifying life, to respond to life in a way that honors God and shows His greatness. In Christ, you have the ability to put off sin and put on godliness. And the reason for this is because you are already made new in Christ. And now what remains is for us to grow into who we were saved to be. Now, this is not to imply at all that it's, it's going to be easy as a believer. The flesh is crucified, but it's still in us. And there are sinful habits and practices and thoughts that must be put to death. There are godly habits and practices and ways of thinking that we must develop as we grow to be like Christ. But the good news is that in Christ, this can be done. Before salvation, we were slaves of sin and there was no ability in us to, to put off sin. We could not set ourselves free. But now in Christ, we are free and by the Holy Spirit who lives in us, we can stop sinning and we can serve our Lord Jesus Christ and glorify God. And so in Christ, because of the salvation that we have, we can change. We can change. We don't have to be the way that we've always been. Maybe you've always been a certain way. You don't have to be that way anymore because of the salvation that you have in Jesus Christ. See, there might be limits on how smart that you and I can be or, or how strong you or I can be, but, you know, and, and we can learn certain things and we can train in certain ways, but there's, there's limits to our capabilities in this world. But when it comes to growth or when it comes to the fruit of the Holy Spirit, we have great hope because there, there are no limits. When it comes to this growth or the fruit of the Holy Spirit, we have great hope because we can change and be like Christ in this world. Now, maybe at this point you're wondering, what's all this talk about changing? And, and you're wondering, well, how can I change? Maybe you have a habit or maybe there's a sin in your life that's been plaguing you. Maybe you've thought that, that you will never be free of something in this life. But if you're a Christian, again, I have good news for you. You can change. And our text this morning shows us how to do it. 
And so we're going to learn how to stop a sin and how to do the opposite godly or holy action. And we're going to learn it right from God's word. Now, this is only for the Christian. What what we're going to talk about today is really for the Christian. In order to do this, you need salvation. Before you can walk worthy of your salvation, you have to have salvation. And so if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, and you aren't born again, then I would just say everything that you hear today, you ought to do, but you'll have no ability to do it, no power to do it unless you're born again. And so I would urge you to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ and come to him. And if you want to know more about that, I would be happy to talk to you after the service about how you can be saved because you could leave here today forgiven of your sins, cleansed, and a new creature in Christ like we just read about. But what we're going to look at today is for the believer, for the saved person. And it's again in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 25. Let's, let's read it together. And when I say together, I mean I'll read and you look at it there in your Bible. Verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth to it with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. But only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, as we kind of break down this text, there's five sections, and and we could really say there's five commands here, five commands, and each one of these has a negative and a positive. There's something to stop, and there's something to do instead, and so stop lying and start telling the truth, or stop stealing and start working and sharing. And each one of these instructions, each one of these commands has uh, a motivation or an instruction about the way that we think. And, and so with each of these, there's a new way to think about the situation. This is how we fight sin. We're, we're told to stop sinning, and so we need to stop it, we need to put it off, and then we need to start doing the opposite holy thing, and then as we do that, we need to renew our minds with the truth. We need to start thinking differently about the situation. And this is the biblical model of sanctification. We turn away from sin and we go the opposite direction and then we allow our mind or our hearts to be transformed by the truth. This is how we grow in the Christian life. And the first word in verse 25 is is the word therefore. And, And the connection is because of the truth about who you are in Christ, because of the truth about what God has done in you in your salvation, because of that, because you've learned Christ, here's what you must do 
And, and then Paul gives these commandments, and, and really these are just kind of, they're commandments, but they're really designed to teach us how to change in every way. And so we could think of these as, as examples. They show us the biblical method to fight against sin in our lives. And they're commandments meant to teach us how to fight any and all sin. And so I called them five commandments to teach you how to change because you could take this principle of put off, put on, and be renewed in your mind, and you could apply it to any sin that's happening in your life. And so the first commandment here is number one, and I kind of just tried to summarize these as we go. The first one is communicate the truth. Communicate the truth. Again, verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And the negative side here has to do with putting off falsehood. The ESV is a, a good translation, which, which implies that the, the falsehood has already been put off. Having put away falsehood. But the positive command is, is to speak the truth. And, and that balances it out, showing here that there's, there's really still falsehood in our lives that needs to be put off. And we're talking about here then, we're talking really about not lying. In order to communicate the truth, you need to, first of all, you need to stop the lying. And there's a, a sense in which you, you become a Christian. When you become a Christian, you become a person of the truth. See, the gospel is called the word of truth, and, and you believe that word, Ephesians 1.13. Jesus himself, the one that we learned, the, the person that we learned is, he said he is the truth in John 14, verse 6. And when we repented of our sins and we came to Jesus, we confessed that God was true and that he was right in all that he said about the evil of sin and that we deserved punishment for our sins. We confessed the truth that came from God. And we came to the light and confessing that our former ways were darkness. We were once false, but God's truth broke through and, and we, we brought our sins to the light when we came to Christ. And now that we are of the truth and of the light, we should have nothing to do with falsehood. Falsehood there in verse 25 is the opposite of truth. It's that which is not genuine or real. And so the idea then <clears throat> is that we ought never to lie. That we should always be truthful and genuine people. That we should present ourselves in the way that we truly are. Now this command to speak the truth comes from Zechariah. And uh, I don't know if you need to turn there, but Zechariah eight sixteen and 17, I'll, I'll read it for you. It says, These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And so Paul's quoting from Zechariah 8.16 where it says, Speak the truth to one another. And Zechariah has in mind the ninth commandment, which I'll quote from Deuteronomy 5, verse 20, the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And so the idea of not bearing false witness also implies that we are to be people who speak 
the truth. And this commandment, this ninth commandment, really has to do with justice and equity. We're to, when we're not genuine or when we fail to speak the truth, what happens is we always do damage to our neighbor. Our lies hurt our neighbor. And so, Jer- so that's why Zechariah is bringing in these ideas of, of truth and justice and making right judgments. We shall not bear false witness against our neighbor. And the way that Paul wants us to renew our minds in this manner, so he says, put off the falsehood, speak truth, each one to one another. And then he says, for we are members of one another. Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And so here's how we deal with our hearts in this. We need to realize that our words affect others. We need to realize that that those others in the church belong to us, that we are members of one another. You see, lying is a very selfish thing. If you think about why do people lie, it's it's a very selfish thing. And bearing false witness is, is even a more extreme form of that, and it's usually done for one's own advantage. You see, I devise evil in my heart against my neighbor, and I, I lie to him or I lie about him because I think it's gonna, that I'm gonna gain something out of it. You see, I think, I think if I lie, he's gonna lose and I'm gonna gain. And what's happening there is I'm not thinking at all about his good. I'm really only thinking about me. And so lying, again, is a very selfish thing. But we need to think differently in order to put off lying. We need to to recognize that my neighbor's good is my good. If he prospers, I prosper. If he does well, then, then I do well. If I do well, he does well. We are members one of another. And if I wouldn't hurt myself, then neither should I hurt someone else. Because as believers, again, we are members of one another. Now, I think there's two ways that this command particularly applies to us. First of all, if we belong to one another, we need to build one another up with the truth. And this goes back to Ephesians 4 and verse 15, where Paul says there, rather, instead of being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And so instead of being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, which was verse 14 or 16 there, we need to build one another up. We need to speak the truth to one another. And the more that we build one another up with the true doctrine, with the truth of God's word, the better we will all do because we are members one of another. Now, the second way that I think this applies to us is in how we talk to one another about one another or in how we present ourselves to one another. And and the idea here is that we should always be genuine. We should always be truthful. See, sometimes we'll exaggerate a grievance against someone with others that we might minimize when we're face-to-face with that person. In fact, if, if, we, if we have something against someone that's significant enough to talk about, truth requires us to go directly to that person. We shouldn't be talking about others negatively at all. And so when we're not genuine, we hurt others, and those others in the church are part of the same body as we are, and so we're hurting really ourselves. And so the first commandment then was to communicate the truth. And we're to stop lying, put on truth, 
and think about it differently. We are members of one another. Now, secondly, the second commandment in verse 26 is constrain your temper. Constrain your temper. And we see this in verse 26 and 27. It says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Or give no opportunity to the devil. Now, verse 26 is a a great verse. It says, be angry. Be angry. You might might never hear this in church again. Be angry. Um, This is the, the only commandment here of the five that puts the positive part first. The negative part or the the part that we need to stop here is, and do not sin. And so don't be sin, uh, don't sin, but do be angry. And so we are told by God in his word to be angry. And so I think we need to ask, well, wait a minute, what is this all about? And we should recognize right away that this command is softened with do not sin. So be angry and do not sin. So it's not talking about a sinful anger here, obviously, because we're not to sin. And in a few verses in verse 31, Paul's going to say this. He's going to say, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. And so we're not talking about one of those sinful forms of anger. We're not talking about an anger that comes from unforgiveness or that's a result of unkindness or any kind of bitterness. We're talking about a different kind of anger when it says, be angry. Now this command here to be angry actually comes from Psalm 4, but it doesn't help a lot when we go to Psalm 4. In Psalm 4, David is telling the wicked that God answers his prayers, and then he says to them, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your bed and be silent, Selah. And then he commands the wicked to offer right sacrifices and to put your trust in the Lord. And so again, that doesn't really help us about this. What is this to be angry? So why should we be angry? Well, according to Psalm 4, David's telling these people to be angry because God has set David apart and God hears his prayers. But then he says, don't sin. Instead, you should put your trust in the Lord. But when Paul quotes this, he's not quoting this to the wicked. He's quoting it to the Ephesian believers. And so what were they to be angry about? Well, really the only options here are, are false teaching and sin. False teaching and sin. Those are really the only things that we can be justifiably angry about. You see, God hates sin. God hates sin and it makes him angry and he has a wrath against sin. But when when God is angry, he doesn't react. His anger doesn't control him. Instead, he's in control of his anger. Whereas so often with us, anger takes hold of us and and controls us. But, But there is a place in the Christian life for righteous anger. Jesus was angry with the Pharisees for their hardness of heart. They were plotting to accuse him for healing on the Sabbath. And Mark 3, 5 says, And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Again, that's Jesus in Mark 3 and verse 5. And when Jesus cleared the temple with a a whip, I think we were right to imagine him as being righteously angry. 
The disciples associated that with Psalm 69.9 where it says, zeal for your house will consume me. And so Jesus was consumed with the zeal for the house of God and he drove out the money changers. And so there's a place for being angry about sin and hating sin. There's a, a place for being angry about error. Error should make us angry. We shouldn't be indifferent to sin or, or indifferent to error. That, that would be unrighteous. But if we are righteously angry, we need to be careful not to sin, as the text says. You see, anger can easily lead us into sin. And so James tells us that we need to be slow to anger. In fact, let's, let's turn over to James chapter 1 and look at a few verses here in, in the book of James. <clears throat> Start off with James 1 and verse 19, where James says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, more often than not, our anger is, is what James calls here the anger of man. Our anger usually arises because we're not getting what we want. See, anger is a, a sinful or often a sinful response to unmet desires. Why do we get angry? Well, I want something, I didn't get it, and so I'm angry. We want something and we, we fight to get it. And we try to control others with our anger so that we can get our way. And James talks about this sinful anger in, in chapter 4, if you just flip over there. Very well-known section, or at least I hope it's a well-known section for you. Very important, James 4, really 1 to, to 7 or 1 to 10 there. So, so good, but I'm going to read verses 1 to 3 there. It's, he, James asks a question at first. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so the cause of quarrels and fights, according to God's word, is our desires. And we call them idols. These are objects of worship other than God. And so we need to be careful that our anger is not caused by our own desires and caused by idols in our lives. We need to ask ourselves what Yahweh asked Jonah in Jonah chapter 4, where in verse 4, the Lord said to him, do you do well to be angry? When we get angry, we need to ask ourselves that question, I think. Do you do well to be angry? Again in verse 9, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? But even if we do do well to be angry, and, and again, there is a time when we do do well to be angry, when it's right to be angry for righteous reasons against sin and against error, there's a limit that Paul puts on us in Ephesians chapter 4, and, and it's this, be angry and do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger. And so we are not to go to bed angry. We're not to sin in our anger, and we're also not even to go to bed angry. Now, interestingly enough, Paul uses a different word for anger at the end of verse 26, and it's an intensified form. 
And it means provocation or exasperation or violent anger or a state of being intensely provoked. That's the idea of this intensified anger. Do not let the sun go down in your violent anger. A good rendering, one commentator says, is is festering anger or provocation or irritation. Don't go to bed with festering anger. Don't go to bed irritated. Don't go to bed provoked with anger. Even if you are rightly angry, you need to deal with that anger before bed. And the way to deal that with that is likely by prayer, likely by lifting it to the Lord, by casting your cares on the Lord, or even in some cases by, by having a conversation with the person who you are angry against. Now we might ask, well, why should I bother to do that? I'm so angry. I don't want to talk to anyone and I don't want to pray about it. I'm, I'm just angry. Well, the, the, it, this is frightening. Here's the motivation for this. And, and we need to, to really think this way, brethren. Look what he says in verse 27. And give no opportunity for the devil. Did you catch that? Give no opportunity for the devil. Paul is warning that festering anger or irritation, severe irritation not dealt with, opens an opportunity for the devil in your life. And that's scary. The devil is going to use your anger, even your righteous anger. If it's, if it's sinful anger, the devil's already got you. Right? If it's sinful anger, you're already, you've already given an opportunity for the devil. But even in your righteous anger, we need to beware because the devil will use your anger to lead you into sin. Now we were just in James chapter 4, 1 to 3, and, and really again, there's so much we could draw from that section, but in verse 7, James says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And so when there's fights and there's quarrels and there's anger going on, if we kind of just look at that context in James chapter 4, we can see that, that there's quarrels and there's idolatry and there's adulterous, an, an adulterous nature in our heart where we're worshiping things other than God and we're going astray from God and there's pride in that context. And in the midst of all of that, the devil is there and James's answer is submit to God and resist the devil. Submit yourself to God and worship Him instead of your own desires and humble yourself before Him because the devil is at work in that kind of a situation in your life. Let's go to a, another text here. I want to show you, a, again, a, a very well-known passage, I would think, in Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. Often think about this passage as far as um, pastoral ministry, and, and rightly so, but there's the, the other side of this is the, the person that, that Paul's talking to Timothy about there. And so 2 Timothy 2.24, it says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. 
And so Paul tells Timothy here how to deal with his opponents. And, and these opponents, they, they must be, if you think about it, they must be in either sin or error because Paul says that they need repentance and they need to come to the knowledge of the truth. And these opponents, whoever they are, whoever Paul has in mind, they're in the snare of the devil. Now they may not even realize it, but they are, they are trapped in the devil's trap and they are doing his will. You know, in their own minds, I, I would imagine if you asked them, they would say, well, I'm not doing the devil's will. I'm just, I just don't like what Timothy's doing. And so they're, they're resisting Timothy. They're opposing Timothy. But in reality, they're resisting God and they're resisting the Lord's servant. And in reality, according to this text, they are serving the devil. And in most cases, what you'll find in such people is you'll find anger. They are, they are angry. Anger opens the door to the devil's snare and the devil's service. And this is why it's so important for us to deal with any anger and to do it quickly and to do it gently. Any issue really it should be dealt with quickly and gently. If something's bothering you, then, then please go talk it through with the person that's bothering you. Don't let it escalate. Don't let it build up overnight. Don't give the devil an opportunity to use you to do damage to God's people and to the church. And so number two was constrain your temper. Be angry, but do not sin. And realize that our anger opens the door for the devil to wreak havoc in our lives. Number three then is, I called it, contribute your treasure. Contribute your treasure. Starting in verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, maybe for some of us, this would be kind of a, a foreign thing, you know, like, were the were the Ephesians thieves? Like were they were they stealing things at times? Like, we don't really know. Um, I, I tend to think more that Paul is just kind of picking general issues as examples here. But you know, I, I did know a brother once who who used to be a thief before he was saved, and even years after he was saved, he if he saw something valuable left unattended. He would have to kind of like reason within himself not to just grab that thing and take it because he was just so used to justifying that, you know, it's, if you left it there unattended, then you're an idiot and I should take your stuff. Like that was just kind of the way that he had thought. And so he would have to have a little talk with himself and say like, that is not my laptop sitting there unattended and I should, you know, at church. And I'm just going to leave it alone, you know. And so, um, you know, each of us have our own struggles in different areas. Um, that is, I don't ever think about stealing stuff, but, um, you know, you might. And so if you were a thief, if that's how your life was before, maybe you can relate to this. Or maybe you can relate to some of the other things in the context that we're dealing with. But, but really, the, the way to deal with this is the same as with any other sin. The first thing you need to do is take responsibility for your actions and stop stealing stuff. If you were a thief, you just, you need to stop it. If you had some other sin in your life, just stop it right now. It's a sin against God. Stop doing it. That is unholy. You can stop it by the grace of God in your life. Stop sinning. But then, Secondly, we need to move on and we need to do the other positive thing. 
And so now that you're a Christian, Paul says, stop stealing, stop sinning. And next, you kind of need to fill the void. You need to not just don't do the bad thing, but now you need to do the opposite good thing. And so you need to do something positive. And so if you were a thief and, and you provided for yourself that way, then you need to get a new godly way to provide for yourself and your family. And Paul says, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. And so don't steal, but do go get a job. And, and the word here means to, to work hard, to toil. It's used for physical struggle. It's used for labor. And he says, do some honest work with his own hands. Now, that doesn't mean that only physical labor is valid here. Um, you know, I used to wonder about this early in my Christian life. What's, what, you know, is it okay if I work on a computer? But if you, if you think about it, even if you did work on a computer, you'd probably be using your hands. Um, but there's really almost no work that I can think of in the ancient Near East that wouldn't have involved using your hands in some way. And so this, this is just get, get a job. And, and we could work through here all the ways in which we might be tempted to steal. And I, I think it'd be profitable. We could talk about cheating on taxes or taking extra long coffee breaks or not working when you're on the clock or other ways that, that we steal maybe without thinking about it. And we could talk through a, a theology of work and maybe we'll do that some other day. But what I think is especially significant here for us today is how we need to renew our minds in this area. And I want you to look now at the motivation for these commands. So he says it again in verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And so we don't work only for ourselves, so that, but we do so so that we could have something to share with others. And there's always going to be people in our midst who are without work or who have need. And the purpose of our work is so that we would share with them. And so you kind of start to see here how all of these commandments that Paul gives are, are renewing our mind in the way that we think about others. You know, the thief, again, was only thinking about himself. What can I get out of this? Now we need to change our thinking and you, and you work not only for yourself, but also for others. And so I, I guess I'd ask then, is that how you think about work? You know, do you work hard performing what is good so that you have something to contribute with those in need? You know, you might not steal and, and that's, that's awesome. Good, congratulations. Good job. Um, that's, that's step one. And you might work hard. Good. That's, that's godly and right as well. But if you only do that thinking about yourself, you're not really obeying this command. You're not really renewing your mind the way God would have us. And so we're to work so that we have something to share with anyone in need. We're to provide so that we can bless others. And all of these commandments, all of this holiness involves thinking about how we can serve others. And so the third exhortation is contribute your treasure. Now, the fourth one returns to our speech, and this is called number four. We called it control your tongue. Control your tongue, verses 29 to 30. Great verse, verse 29, probably a, a good memory verse for some of us. Let, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up 
as fits the occasion. Now, we're used to the pattern by now. Paul begins with what not to do, and and what not to do is to let corrupting talk or no corrupting word should come out of our mouths. Literally, we would translate this, every word of rottenness from your mouth shall not go out. Every word of rottenness from your mouth shall not go out, should not go out. And, And the focus is on each word that we speak. Every word needs to be carefully chosen. Not one of them should be rotten. The word translated there, corrupting, or what I've been calling rotten or unwholesome in the Legacy Standard Bible, it's a, it's a very general word for bad things. It, it means rotten. It was used for rotten wood or withered flowers or rancid fish. It was used for something that was worn out or useless or of little value. And so Jesus used it in Matthew 7, 17, where he says, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. And that word there translated diseased is our word that we're looking at. The word there translated bad or evil is, uh, is a different word for bad, but this is the word that's just a general word for bad. Again, Matthew 13, 47, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. And so they would bring in this net full of fish and, and some of them were the kind of fish that you could eat and some of them were the kind of fish that was forbidden according to the law and they would just throw those back. They were worthless. They were bad fish. Rotten rotten words, when we think about our words, rotten words would, would be any kind of bad words. This would include cursing or swearing, foul language, or, or just even more generally, just words that aren't profitable, words that are worthless. We saw in Matthew 12, 36, where Jesus said, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word that they speak where that that word careless there is a different word but the same idea there that there's going to be an accounting for our words and Paul tells us not to not to allow an unprofitable word to come out of our mouth and the text continues then with a strong contrast but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion and so instead of bad words that that maybe tear down, our words should be good words that, that build up, that fit the occasion. And the idea is that our words should meet the need or should supply what's lacking towards building the other person up. And so if you think about what does this mean, how does this look, you just imagine somebody who's discouraged. Somebody's discouraged. They're, they're lacking encouragement and the words from our mouth should encourage them. Or if somebody is weary and, and they're tired, our, our words should strengthen them, should encourage them and empower them to keep going. Or what about someone who's afraid? You know, maybe we would think about the, the Lord's word to Joshua in Joshua 1, 7 and 8, where the Lord says to him, you know, as he's about to enter into the, the promised land and fight the Philistines and the, the, the Canaanites and the, the people of the land, God says to him, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. 
And this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may, day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. And so Joshua might be tempted to be afraid, and the Lord comes along and says, be strong and, and very courageous, Joshua. Follow my word, and you will have good success. And so the idea then is that whatever the need is in the person, first we should be able to discern that need. We should be kind of talking to people, thinking about them and, and how we can help them. And then secondly, once we've kind of discerned that need, we should aim to, to meet that need in the other person. We should speak to them in ways that help them with what's going on in their life. And, that, and that's the idea here. Now this one has two motivations. At the end of verse 29, it says that it may give grace to those who hear. And then second in verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And so the first motivation is positive and the second one is negative and, and they really seem to work together. The goal of our, of our words is to minister grace. And grace is usually God's favor. And so our words should bring people to God and should empower people for serving God. And so what a, what a standard this is when you think about it, that, that our words should really do what God's salvation does in our life, that it should impart grace, that it should, it should impart favor from God in the person's life. That, that's really an amazing thought. But then secondly, on the negative side, verse 30 turns it around and it says that when we don't, when we don't do this, when we don't build up, when our, when our words don't give grace to build up the other person to supply what's lacking in their life, we grieve the Holy Spirit. And this Spirit, of course, is God and, and He, according to the text, has sealed us for the day of redemption. According to Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, the Spirit is, has sealed us for this day of redemption and, and He is the guarantee of our inheritance. And the connection to this sealing and, and this, this work of the Spirit also kind of touches on uh, Ephesians 2. And so if you're there, just turn back to Ephesians 2, 21 and 22. Starting in verse 21, in whom, in Christ the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built up together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so the, there's this picture of, of the church being built and, and pieces, each member of the church is kind of being built up and, and we're a, a temple in the Lord and, and we're a place where the Holy Spirit dwells. And so together, the church is, is this group being built up into a dwelling of the Spirit. We are the temple. And the Holy Spirit is, is doing this. It says it was by the Spirit at the end of verse 22. The Holy Spirit is doing this, and He is, he is doing it through us and through our words. And so when we don't speak in such a way that it gives grace to those who hear, the Spirit is grieved. And so what a mot what motivation this is then to, to guard our words and to use our words for good. Because we can participate with the Holy Spirit 
in building a people where God himself dwells. And that, that should really be our focus with our speech. Again, we're very much thinking about others here. We're very much thinking about the church. Stop your bad words and start speaking helpful, good words and, and think about what you're involved with in that you are, you're working together with the Holy Spirit in the work that he is doing in this world of building a church, a people that God can dwell in. And the final command then in verses 31 and 32 comes back to this idea of anger. And uh, it says, we, we called this number five, change your temperament, change your temperament. And uh, verse 31 says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And so first of all, we're to stop doing a, a whole host of negative things here. And all of these revolve around this idea of anger. And the word all most likely refers to each one of these. And so it, it means here all sorts of or every kind of. Every form of rage needs to be put away. And there's kind of an escalation that's happening here from the inside of the person to the outside. And so it starts off with, with bitterness, which is, which is usually just something inside in the heart. And that, that bitterness leads to wrath and anger, which leads then to clamor, which is, a, which is a kind of shouting. We'll talk about it in a minute. And from that, from that shouting then comes slander, which is a, abusive speech towards the other people. So starting with bitterness, this word is used four times and, and always as an attitude of resentment towards another person. And it's a form of anger towards someone that, that typically eats a person up from the inside. You know, it's, it's this, this kind of like internal anger. One, one teacher, one counselor called it a, a pill that, I forget how he said it, but something like it's bitterness is the pill that you eat that hurts you in order to try to hurt somebody else. One commentator called it a hardness of heart that harbors resentment about the past. That's bitterness. And Simon the sorcerer in Acts 8.23 was in the gall of bitterness, according to Peter. And it's characteristic of unsaved people. Romans 3.14, it says, their mouth is full of curses and Bitterness. Again, that's that section in Romans 3.10 that, that speaks about how there is none righteous and describes from Scripture the sinfulness of man. And, and one of the things is that their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Hebrews 12.15 says that we're to see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. And so there's this picture of this, this root that's, that's digging down, but as, as it kind of grows and, and comes out, this bitterness will defile many people. And so that's bitterness. We're to, we're to put that away as well as wrath and anger. And, and I think we understand what those are. All of this is to be put away. The word translated clamor means crying or screaming or shouting. And uh, it was typically used of crowds of people when there's a, a big crowd of people shouting and screaming. 
And so, of course, we would need to say here that there should be no shouting and yelling at, at others. Put that away. We need to, we need to stop doing that. If, if we're doing that, we need to stop it. And then the word translated slander is, is literally blasphemia. It's, it's blasphemy. And it, it was used mostly for somebody speaking against God. But towards people, it, it, the word means abusive speech or slander or defamation or anything that would would vilify somebody or make them look bad that would that would hurt their reputation and their character and typically this kind of slander is done by lying or by gossip and then malice is is wickedness or ill will towards somebody wishing that that something bad would happen to somebody that we're upset with that, that this needs to cease all of this needs to stop and all of it is to be replaced in the, in the place of that is with kindness and tender heartedness and forgiveness. And so instead of hard hearts, we should have tender ones. And instead of anger, we should have kindness. Instead of harboring bitterness, we should forgive. And the motivation here is that doing so makes us like God and like the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's really a, a great motivation. God forgave us in Christ, and so we should forgive others. And we should be kind and tender-hearted towards them, not angry and upset with them. And so to conclude then, this is the way to grow. This is the, the pattern for sanctification in our lives. I think we could even say, first of all, we need to recognize who we are in Christ and what God has done for us in our salvation our old man is crucified. We're no longer slaves to sin. We are, we are new creatures in Christ. We have a, a fresh start and we have a new nature that's not in bondage to sin. And so because of who we are in Christ and because of what God has done for us, therefore, we need to, to do certain things. We need to stop certain sins. We need to make no excuses for our sin. We need to take radical measures to put it off. We need to do whatever is necessary to stop it. And so we need to take responsibility for our own sin. And if there's a sin in your life, it, it really is, in some senses, it's that simple. You just need to stop doing it. And you have the power in Christ to do that. And then on the other hand, it, it's not enough just to stop. You need to do the other side. You need to go the other way. And so you need to start doing the opposite holy and righteous thing. You know, to sin is selfish. And instead, we need to think about others. Sin is also very temporal. It's very focused on the here and now, whereas we need to be people who think about eternity. We are soon going to be with the Lord and, and with Christ in heaven forever and be rewarded for our works. And so now is the time to do good and glorify God. And we need to renew our minds. We need to think about what is the, the opposite thing? What is the unselfish opposite thing that I need to put on instead of this sin that I've been bound to? And so we need to renew our minds. We need to get rid of idols. We, we worshiped our way into sin. If you think about it, all sin really comes from desires that aren't pleasing to God. And so we are wanting things that, that aren't pleasing to God. And, and so we need to renew our minds and think about how can I worship God and go in the opposite direction of this sin. And if you need, like I always say, if you, if you need help in figuring out how can I stop 
a particular sin in my life? How can I start doing the opposite? Or what is the opposite? Or, or how does my mind need to be renewed because I keep falling into the same sin? Then I would encourage you to, to come and talk to me and, and I can, I can help try to counsel you that because sometimes we need a little help, a little extra help, just like Paul gave us in the categories that he gave us. How do I deal with anger? How do I deal with, um, the, the words of my mouth? How do I deal with my stealing? How do I deal with my temper? How do I deal with my lying? And he gives us some directions. There's other directions in the Word of God that helps us to deal with any sin that we deal, deal with. And so, I can help you with that. I have little helpful counseling booklets that, that I can give that would give you some direction on how to fight any sin. But in conclusion, I just want to say this. I just want to remind you again that that you can change. That no matter what sin, that if you're a Christian, no matter what sin you've been dealing with, you can change and you can grow because of the salvation that we have in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for these commandments that teach us how to change. And we pray again like we prayed this morning, Father, that You would change us. That You would um, renew our minds, that your word would impact us and that you would help us to stop sinning and to be holy because we know, Father, that you are holy and we are your children. And so, Father, we thank you for your love for us, the, the love of Jesus that, that changes us, that saves us. And we pray that as we close now, that you would help us to sing about that in Jesus' name. Amen.